Genesis chapter 47. The title of my uh, teaching time tonight is The End of the Beginning, because the entire study, uh, we've called it, um, we've called it uh, In the Beginning, a study in Genesis. And so uh, the book of Genesis explains the foundations of, of, of God creating the world, the problem with the world, it tells us how sin entered the world, it tells us how God began to bring about a solution, a, a, a redemption for our sin, forgiveness for our sins. He put in a rescue plan into place. And so it tells us the beginning, beginnings of a lot of things. Uh, so we're going to talk about the end of the beginning, the end of the beginning chapter of the Bible. And in these closing chapters of Genesis, they're, they're just really two things I want you to see, and that can be a little misleading because there's a lot of subpoints. all right? So, so don't get too excited, all right? But, but two major truths that I want you to see from these last few chapters in Genesis. First of all, first truth, number one, is uh, the closing chapters of Genesis teach us how to finish well. The closing chapters of Genesis teach us how to finish well. Well, and what I want to do is I want to just pose this question. How does a person finish well? And let's just go ahead and get this out there. We don't know when we're going to reach the finish line, do we? We don't know. I mean, it could be tomorrow for any one of us in this room, right? And we don't know when we're going to reach the finish line, but we know the finish line is coming. And so how can we uh, take advantage of the time God gives us between now and the finish line and live that amount of time to the fullest, for the glory of God, making a difference in this world. How can we finish well? Well, let me give you uh, three answers to that question. Number one, be a blessing. Be a blessing. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 47, verse 1. Now remember the, the background story. God promised Abraham that he would build through his descendants a mighty nation. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, give them a promised land, and one day through his descendants he would bless all the peoples of the earth, which is a picture of Christ who came through the descendants of Abraham, died on the cross for the sins of the world. So now, if anyone places their faith in Christ, they can experience the blessing of salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, transformation, redemption, regeneration. They can experience that in Christ. So through the descendants of Abraham, all the peoples of the world have the potential to be blessed with God's rescue, right? So that's how God uh, fulfilled uh, those promises to Abraham. And the rest of the book, starting in chapter 12, is the story of Abraham's descendants, how, how Abraham's descendants grew into a nation, and how God watched over them and protected them and provided for them and was faithful to them even when Abraham's descendants were faithless. I mean, if you read the patriarchs, you see... Uh, about the patriarchs, you see that the family was a mess. And you've heard me say it every week. You think your family has problems. Just read about the patriarchs. Read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. I mean, there were some problems in these families, and yet God is faithfully doing his thing. He's faithfully working out his plan, even though the people sometimes aren't living out their, uh, their lives well. But in Genesis 47, we see that... Um, Joseph, uh, the uh, son of Jacob, uh, who had, through God's providence, become the second most powerful man in Egypt, uh, is bringing his family 
uh, to Egypt to provide for them, including his father, Jacob, to protect them during a time of great famine. And it says in chapter 47, verse 1, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, Now remember, no one was more powerful in Egypt than Joseph except for Pharaoh. So he goes into Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. By the way, that will come into play in the book of Exodus. All right. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then, this is where it gets really interesting. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. He brought him in before Pharaoh. And Jacob, this shepherd from the land of Canaan, Jacob, this Hebrew sojourner, Jacob blesses the king. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, that, which was a polite way of saying, How old are you? All right. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed, there it is again, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. I believe there is much to glean here from the reality that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted the blessing of Jacob. We see in the act of Jacob, this blessing of Pharaoh an illustration of God's purpose for his people. We see in the act of Jacob blessing Pharaoh an illustration of God's purpose for his people. God's design, I want you to hear me, God's design in gathering a people is to to make his name known through those people to others who are not yet his people. We said again, God's design in gathering a people, a special people, is so he can make his name known through those people to people who are not yet his people. So God chose the nation of Israel. And people say, well, why did he choose them? I mean, why do you have this special, this special nation? Did he not care about the other nations? Well, no, that's not the case at all. Of course he cared about the other nations. His desire was to use Israel so that they could reflect his glory to all the other nations, and they would worship him as the one true God. Israel was designed to be a missionary nation. They were designed to make God known to the others. As a matter of fact, turn to Exodus chapter 19. I want to show you this. Exodus chapter 19. This is after God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt, the great exodus. And he says in verse 3, Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you, watch this, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God wanted the Jewish people to be priests between him and the pagan nations of the world. A priest is one that comes in between God and men. And they were to be a a kingdom of priests to make God's name known to the pagan nations that surrounded them. They were supposed to show the world what it means to worship and live for and live in relationship with the one true God. So it wasn't like God chose this nation and didn't want anybody else. It was he chose this nation to make his name known to everybody else. And so from the very beginning of the Bible, God shows his missionary heart, his heart for the nations. And I believe that Jacob blessing Pharaoh is just an illustration of that. Here comes this, this person of the people of God that is blessing Pharaoh in the name of the one true God, making God's name known to this pagan king. Now, we know that the, the Hebrew people uh, are the, the, the chosen people, the chosen nation of God. In the New Testament, there's a shift, and the Bible says that there's a spiritual Israel. In other words, God is gathering his people today, and those people are called the church, right? So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are one of God's people. And and what does God expect from his people? Well, turn to 1 Peter. I'm glad you asked. Turn to 1 Peter. New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. Verse 9, talking to the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. He says there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Isn't that interesting? He calls them a priest, just like he called the Hebrews a, a kingdom of priests. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercies. Here's what he's saying. Now as my people, you are my chosen nation. You are my church. Your job is to proclaim God's excellencies, proclaim God's greatness, proclaim God's grace, proclaim God's love, proclaim God's salvation to those who are not yet the people of God. That's our job. So Israel and the church have the have and had the exact same mission, to make the one true God known to those who are not yet people of God, to those who are far from God, so they can hear about him and believe in him and come to him for worship. And so I believe back in Genesis 47 that, that Jacob is an illustration of, of extending knowledge of the one true God to someone like Pharaoh. And so that comes back to you and me in this room. How do we finish well? We finish well by being a blessing. We finish well by making other people aware of the God that we serve. We finish well 
by saying it simply, telling others about Jesus. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, the, the emphasis has been for, for the last several weeks, you've got to open up your mouth and tell someone about Jesus, right? We're going to change the world. We've got to, we've got to be a blessing by telling others uh, the, the good news about Jesus Christ. And so, how can you finish well? You finish well by being a blessing to others, being a representative for God, just like Jacob was, and making his name known to a world that desperately needs him. That, that's how you finish well. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather go to heaven and stand before Christ with empty hands? Or would you rather go to heaven and stand before Christ saying, here are the people I brought with me because I shared Jesus with them. And they believed, and Lord Jesus, you saved them. And here I am with those people I brought with me to heaven. Do you, want to, you don't want to go to heaven empty-handed, do you? Wouldn't you love to be an instrument in the hands of God? To, to usher others into the presence of God because you were the instrument that shared the good news with them. So how do you finish well? You finish well by being a blessing. Number two, how can you finish well? Plan your funeral. That's morbid, isn't it? That'll bless you tonight. Plan your funeral. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, look what the Bible says in uh, Genesis 47. Back in Genesis 47. We're going to see Jacob, Joseph's father, plan his funeral. Look what it says in verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel, Jacob, God gave him the name Israel. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. So back in those days, to, to make a solemn oath of someone, you would put your hand under their thigh, sort of like a, sort of like a handshake or signing a contract. Uh, honestly, it's kind of weird. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. All right, uh, we don't put our hands on other people's thighs to say that we are keeping our word. Uh, handshakes a lot better. But but he said, "Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me." Listen, do not bury me in Egypt. So he's thinking about his funeral, isn't he? When I die, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. And bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do. Joseph said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now also, fast forward to chapter 49. Genesis 49. Look what it says in verse 29. He spent some time with his sons. We'll get to that in a few minutes. It says, he commanded them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers. Here he goes talking about his funeral again. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So what does he do? Before he dies, Jacob 
plans his funeral. He's very specific about where he wants to be buried. And so here's what I want to say to you. We should desire that our funeral will be a place where our faith is proclaimed. That's in your notes. Let your funeral be an occasion where your faith or when your faith is proclaimed. See, I want you to think about it like this. Jacob's desire to be buried in Hebron is an act of faith. It conveys his belief that, according to God's promise, the future dwelling for his descendants will, in, will be in Canaan and not in Egypt. So he said, hey, God told my forefather Abraham he had, he'd give him a promised land. And I lived in that promised land for a while. And so by me asking you to bury me back in the promised land, I am saying I have faith that God's going to do what he says. God's going to bring his people out of Egypt back into the promised land. That's exactly what happens. Exodus, he brings them out of Egypt. Joshua, he brings them into the promised land. So I believe this this desire to be buried in Canaan is an expression of his faith uh, in God. uh, An expression of his faith that God will keep his promises. And so by the very act of them burying him in Canaan, uh, by Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah, his faith in God's promises is being conveyed and proclaimed. And, and we should want our funeral to be a time when our faith is proclaimed. Did you know that your life can speak on even after you die? Your life can speak volumes even when you're no longer here physically. Did you know that? And I believe that as Christians, we need to really think through our funerals. Because when our time comes, we want people to know we were followers of Christ. And we want people to know that there's hope in Jesus. And we want people to know that if you don't have that hope, your time of death is coming. And you need to get right with God through Jesus Christ. Right? We want people to know that. And a funeral is a great time to let people know the, the, the glories of your faith in Christ Jesus. The hope of your faith in Christ Jesus. So, so plan your funeral. Plan your funeral. Talk to somebody. Talk to your kids, grandkids, whatever, and say, Hey, uh, when I die, here's what I want to happen. Someone needs to be sharing the gospel when I die. Hey, let me get, I, I, we're going to play my voice. Claire in here tonight? Probably a good one for not to be in here. So let me tell you about my funeral, all right? Somebody better be sharing the gospel, all right? I want someone preaching the word. I want to hear the song in Christ alone. I want people preaching about Christ. I want people talking about hope in Jesus. I want people to celebrate and have victory in Christ. I I want my funeral to be a time where it's not about weight, it's about Jesus. All right, so y'all make sure that happens, okay? Y'all make sure that happens. But we should all plan for our lives to speak on even when we're no longer here. Plan your funeral. Jacob did. I think it's a good way to finish well. And here's another aspect of planning for your funeral. Live in such a way that you will be missed. <laughs> Look what it says over in Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Jacob dies and It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. 
And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in, in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. It says, verse 9, they, they there uh, went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, there, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called Abel Mizraim. Abel Mizraim, which means the, 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 the meadow of mourning uh, in, in Egyptian. And, and thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of, the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possessed as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So what happens? They go and, and they weep. They weep over the patriarch Jacob. They, 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 are, they are broken with grief over their loved one. And, and we, need to, we need to strive to live in such a way that when people say nice things at our funeral about us, and they will, that's, that's what they do at funerals, right? They say nice things. But we want the things that people say to be actually true. Right? We, we want to live in such a way that we'll be missed and our life had an impact and people ha- don't have to lie about us at our funeral. Right? That's what we want. That should be our desire. And I, there's a picture of this in this story. They wept over Jacob. So live so as to be missed. Be a blessing Plan your funeral. Think about, listen, think about the impact your life will have when you're no longer here. Think about that and plan accordingly. There's a third thing that comes under the heading of finishing well. You and I need to speak truth to our family. Speak truth to our family. Now, turn back to Genesis 48 and 49 with me. It's where it gets really, really interesting. In these two chapters, Jacob speaks truth to his sons and Joseph's sons, who are his grandsons. In Genesis 48, Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons, to get a blessing from his dad, Jacob. And Jacob blesses them. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. Chapter 49, all 12 of the sons of Jacob, including Joseph, are gathered together and and Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons, a, a patriarchal blessing. And really what this blessing is, there's not a lot of blessing going on. Really what he's doing here in these chapters is he's predicting their future and he's speaking truth into their life. So there's some prophetic element to it and there is some, some truth speaking about spiritual realities in these blessings. And so what we see happening in Genesis 48 and 49 is Jacob is talking to his family about spiritual matters. He's speaking truth into their lives. And so let me just show you the content of what Joseph said to his sons. 
First of all, character matters. Character matters. He wanted his sons to understand that character matters. Look what it says in Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So he's going to predict some things about their future. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And he begins with Reuben. He goes from oldest to youngest. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent dignity and preeminent power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Speaking of him uh, committing uh, abominable acts with his uh, concubine. And so... He's speaking here of Reuben's character. He said, Reuben, you have a lot going for you. You're, you're the firstborn. And yet there's this instability in your life. There's this spiritual instability. And, and this is Jacob's way of communicating to Reuben and to others listening, hey, character matters. Who you are matters. And I'm telling you, maybe more than anything, our nation needs that message. Our, our, the, the, the next generation needs that message. Character matters. Who you are on the inside matters. It really does. And we need to be talking about things like integrity and things like in char- character and faithfulness and work ethic. We need to be talking about those things because they are so very important. And, and, and Jacob here is communicating, hey, it matters. Your, your character matters. Secondly, We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. He says there in verse 4, You shall not have preeminence. You won't have the the blessing of the firstborn because of your past actions. And so he he shares with Reuben that your past actions are affecting you. They have have present-day consequences. Look what he says in verse 5, speaking to Simeon and Levi, who are brothers. He says, Weapons of violence are their swords, let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. Speaking of Shechem, when the men of Shechem uh, defiled their sister Dinah, and they took matters in their own hands, took vengeance in their own hands, and slaughtered uh, a, a, a whole community of people. And he said they, 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 they're violent. For in their anger, verse 6, they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. In their wrath... For it is cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In other words, because of their hot-headed vengeance, there are going to be some ongoing consequences in their lives. And he's just relaying the idea that we see in Galatians chapter 6. That what a man sows, he will also what? Reap. It's a spiritual consequence. And we see that relayed from Jacob to his sons. Warren Wiersbe writes this, As we've seen, Joseph replaced Reuben with the firstborn blessing. Joseph is given that blessing later on in chapter 49. And now Joseph's sons, chapter 48, Ephraim and Manasseh, would replace Simeon and Levi. Say, wait, what happened to Simeon and Levi? Well, 
the Levites were given no inheritance in the promised land. They were the priests, the priestly tribe, and they did not have a, a parcel of land they could call their own. Uh, they had to live off of the generosity of the others and, and the, the offerings, really, of the other tribes. So they didn't have any inheritance of land in the promised land, and they lived in 44 cities scattered throughout Israel that were not truly their own. And Simeon was eventually absorbed into the tribe of Judah. You can read about that in Judges chapter 19. They were so obliterated that they were absorbed into another tribe. So in this way, Wiersbe writes, God punished Levi and Simeon for their anger and violence at Shechem. So Ephraim and Manasseh take the place of uh, Reuben and, I'm sorry, Simeon and Levi. In other words, their direct consequences for their past behavior. And that's an important reality that we need to learn. There are consequences for the times in your life when you turn your back upon God and ignore His will and ignore His way and do life the way you think you ought to do life. There are consequences for ungodly decisions. He's saying, we reap what we sow. He's speaking this truth over their life. Third, third part of truth he speaks to his sons is we need God. We need God. Look what it says in chapter 49, verse 16. He's talking about Dan. Dan shall judge his people. He's talking about all his sons in this this chapter. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. So there's going to be some sting from Dan's tribe in the way he the way he responds and treats people. And he says in verse 18, just kind of a kind of a, just an interjection. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. As he's talking about his sons and and their character issues and his sons reaping what they've sown and their future and the trouble he sees in their future, he just stops and says, "Lord, I wait for your salvation." In other words, God, we need you. I mean, my family's a mess. God, we need you. I love how the ESV Study Bible comments on this verse, verse 18. It says, Jacob's pronouncements are interrupted by, here by a brief prayer that highlights his concern for his descendants. Without divine deliverance, they will not survive. That's what he's saying. God, if you don't show up, if you don't help out, my family is in trouble. I'm pronouncing these, these predictions over their life, and I'm thinking about their past, and, 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 and Lord, my family's a mess. God, I wait for your salvation. God, I need you. God, we need you. And it is altogether appropriate that we say to our family often, hey, we need God. Without Him, we're just a mess. We're broken We're fallen. We're ruined. We need the salvation of the Lord to make things right in our life, to to, to bind up our brokenness, to transform our lives, to give us future and hope and fulfillment and purpose. We need God. We need God. And I hope you tell your children often that you need God and they need God. They need the salvation that is found through Jesus Christ. I think I shared this illustration the 9.30 service, um, I didn't share it at 11 o'clock, I don't think, and so I'll share it again. So if you heard it before, just act interested. But, but the, the other day, it illustrates what I'm talking about really well. The other day, uh, Abby Faith, my four-year-old daughter, was relaying to me a story she learned in her um, connect group in, on, on Sunday mornings. 
They were talking about the thief on the cross, how one of them believed in, in Jesus today would be with me in paradise. And Abby kept talking about that bad man. That bad man, Jesus said, you can go with me to heaven. It's basically what she got out of the story. That bad man. And I told, her, I told her, I said, Abby Faith, you know why that's an important story? I said, it's important because we're all bad people. We're all bad. I mean, we all have something in common with that thief on the cross. We've all sinned against a holy God, right? All of us. We're all a mess. And so we need Jesus. That's why that, sport, that story's so important. We need Jesus. And, and Jacob is, is going through the, the, this, this, this act of predicting his children's future, and he just stops and says, Lord, we, we wait for your salvation. I need your salvation. Will you help out? Show up, please. Because we're a mess. So that's the third truth he shares with him. Here's the fourth truth. God has a plan for our lives. God has a plan for our lives. Now back to Ephraim and Manasseh over in uh, chapter 48. It's really interesting. We won't read every verse, but uh, Joseph brings them in uh, to his father Jacob to uh, get their blessing. And uh, Manasseh is the oldest and Ephraim is the, uh, the, the youngest. And uh, it comes time to, to uh, lay uh, his, his hands on their head, and so he wants to put uh, Manasseh uh, right there at the right hand of, of, of Jacob so he can bless him with his right hand, the hand of preeminence, and he puts Ephraim on the other side. And, and uh, instead of putting his right hand on Manasseh's head and his left hand on, on Ephraim's head, he, he crosses over like that. He puts his right hand on Ephraim's head. I think I got it right. Is that right? Manasseh's the oldest, Ephraim's the second. And he, he puts his right hand on Ephraim's head. And Joseph says, wait, 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 no, no, no. You, you put your right hand over here on the oldest. And, and, and Jacob says, no, sorry, sorry. I, I know what I'm doing. And he pronounces uh, a prediction over Ephraim and Manasseh. Look what it says there in, um, in verse 20. Well, verse, verse 19. His father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a people. Talking about Manasseh. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, But you will pronounce blessings, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he put, that, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And so here he, he, he pronounces a, a blessing over Ephraim and Manasseh. And God has a very specific role for Ephraim and Manasseh. And God's the one that decides Ephraim will have a greater role, a a more prominent, more preeminent role as the future unfolds. God decided that through Jacob. And look what it says in chapter 49, verse 13. He's talking about some of his other sons. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall dwell... He shall become a haven for ships. His border shall be at Sidon. So he's talking about Zebulun being a seafaring tribe. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people. And, and, he, and he just walks through his sons and, and talks about their future, how God is going to use them, what is going to happen to them. In other words, he's saying, listen, God has a plan. And your life is going to unfold according to God's plan. When uh, I went to do an internship with Campus Crusade for Christ in Orlando, Florida, the summer of 1997, 
I got to meet Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and his wife, Vonette, and uh, Bill Bright's with the Lord now, but just a great man of God, a visionary man of God. And he had written a track called The Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody ever seen The Four Spiritual Laws? Raise your hand high so I can see it. Okay. It's just a track you pass out to, to share, share Christ. And I love how it starts. I love how the track starts. The, the, the first spiritual law. Here it is. It says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Do you believe God loves your children and has a wonderful plan for their life? Do you believe God loves your grandchildren has a wonderful plan for their life? Do you believe God loves your spouse has a wonderful plan for their life? I believe that. And I believe these, these verses point us to the fact that God, God knows how things are going to unfold and God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And I believe that one of the ways God wants to use us in the next generation's life is to constantly remind them, God has a plan for you. You need to walk with Jesus. You need to follow Him. You need to, to build your life upon the, the unshakable foundation of the Word of God. Because if you'll do that, God will show you His plan and He will use you beyond anything you can ever imagine. Now, we've got to be careful not to name the plan for them. We don't have the prophetic foresight that Jacob had, right? We don't want to tell our kids what they're going to do. We want, we want God to show them that. But we want to prepare them for whatever it is. Prepare them to walk with Jesus and, 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 and have a, a biblical worldview and a global vision so that when it's time for God to show them what He wants them to do, they're ready, they're spiritually ready to follow Christ wherever He might lead. But we need to say that all the time. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. People have asked me before, do you want your sons to be preachers? And here's my answer. If God calls them, if God calls them, I'd love it. That'd be awesome. I would love it. Matter of fact, I have a friend that prays for me, and he prays for my son, that they would be preachers one day. That's awesome. I like that. That's cool. But I don't want them called by daddy. Right? That's not going to do them any good. I want them to follow God's specific plan for their life, whatever it may be, whatever it may be. My job is to prepare them for that moment when God shows them so that they will follow Jesus and, and not turn back. It's a new song out on K-Love, No Turning Back. Have you heard that? Brandon Heath, really good. I like it. Anyway, God has a plan for our lives. God has a plan for our lives, and he's relaying that to them. Now, they may not have liked some of the things he had to say, but it's clear that God had a purpose for them as the future unfolds. Here's the next thing. God is good. God is good. Look what it says over in chapter 49. He finally gets to Joseph. Joseph, the son that he thought was dead for, for years. Joseph, the one who was the second most powerful man in Egypt by God's providence. Joseph the one who brought his family to Egypt to, to provide for them during the great famine. He finally gets to Joseph, and look what it says in verse 22. Joseph, remember he really loved Joseph. Remember, Joseph was his favorite because he made him a coat of many colors. Remember that story? So he had a really a lot of affection for Joseph. I'm sure his heart was overflowing because he had all those years where he thought he was dead. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not advocating playing favorites. That's just, that was the reality of the situation. As a matter of fact, playing favorites got him into a lot of trouble. 
So I don't think playing favorites is good. That's just what happened, all right? But here he says, Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers, I like this, this imagery of how his life was difficult. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. I wonder if he was saying that he was looking at the brothers. <laughs> Remember when you guys threw him in a pit and sold him to the slave traders? He says, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. In other words, he persevered under the stress and the strain and the brokenness of his hardship. But look what it says. How did he do that? By the hands. By the hands of who? Now look at all these titles he gives to God. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. I like that. God's a mighty one, isn't he? There's no one mightier than God. God is mighty. He's all mighty. From there is the shepherd. He calls God the shepherd, the one that leads us and guides us and provides for us and gives us rest. I just read recently Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He he leads me by still pastures. He leads me uh, beside the still waters. He restores my soul. The Lord is our shepherd. And he says, the stone of Israel. So God is mighty and God is a shepherd. And God is a rock. He is unmovable. He is a foundation that you can build your life upon. And if you'll build your life upon the rock, you will not be shaken when life throws its best, its worst at you. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. And so he just keeps pointing to God's goodness and God's strength that had helped Joseph to endure and persevere through the hard times. And he's just saying, God is good. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's strong. He's the rock. He's tender. He's a shepherd. God is good. And oh, how we need to tell our, our, our children, our children's children's, uh, children's children, God is good. And so in this, in this passage, these chapters we see some insight into how Jacob finished well and how we can finish well. You seek to be a blessing to others by making the one true God known to them. You plan your funeral and you speak truth to your family. Pretty simple, isn't it? But if you will do those three things, I I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God, I promise you, you will have an impact in in your family's life if you'll do those three things. I promise you. Something as simple as sitting down over dinner one night and talking about your funeral. I'm telling you, that can speak volumes about your confidence in Christ, your hope beyond the grave, and your desire that people are saved when they come face to face with the reality of mortality. So, that's how you finish well. Now there's a second thing we learn from these last few chapters of Genesis. The closing chapters of Genesis highlight God's plan of redemption. Now I want you to hear me carefully. I'm trying to think how to say this. Genesis and the Old Testament is not primarily a book 
for our growth in morality. In other words, the primary purpose of Genesis and the Old Testament is not just to teach us to live moral lives. That's not the purpose. Now, we do glean that. We just did that, right? We just, we just learned some things about how to live our lives from the example of Jacob. So we just did that. But that's not the primary thing. The primary reason or purpose of the Old Testament is to tell a story of what God has done in human history to provide a Savior for you and for me. It's, it's a story of redemption. And if you lose sight of that, you'll mishandle the Old Testament. You'll mishandle the book of Genesis. It's all part of one big story about God's plan of redemption. Now, are there lessons to learn? Absolutely, there are lessons to learn. But don't miss the big picture of what God is doing. And these last few chapters highlight God's plan of redemption. So look there with me. Let me just kind of walk you through some things we see in these last few chapters. First of all, the descendants of Abraham have been saved from destruction. We get to the end of Genesis, we know that instead of them being destroyed by the famine... The family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're saved. All right? Look what it says in Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph talking to his brothers after his father died. And he says, As for you... Now, now the, the brothers came to him after their father died because they said, Now that our dad's dead, he's going to get us. We sold him into slavery... He went to prison because of it. He's going to get us. And and Joseph says, listen, I'm not going to get you. you're, You're missing the point. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for what? Good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God even used your wickedness to bring about this whole situation to get me in Egypt, to raise me up to power so that I could bring my family to Egypt and and provide for them through the famine. So you meant it for evil, but God overruled your wickedness and he used it for his glory and our ultimate good. The family's here. My family is saved. That's good news. Because, listen, if the seed of Abraham would have perished during the famine, how would have all the peoples of the earth been blessed? How would that promise have been kept that he made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12? How could he send a Messiah through the Jews if there are no Jews, right? This is a big deal. And so the descendants of Abraham have been saved from destruction. Secondly, the descendants of Abraham have prospered and multiplied. Look over in Genesis 47. They settle in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And in Genesis 47, verse 27, it says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied. What's that word? What's the next word? Greatly. They multiplied greatly. And so not only does God preserve them, God prospers them. I mean, they're growing. They're 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 developing into a nation. We know that about 400 years later, when God delivered them from Egypt, there were probably about 2 million Hebrews. The way we get that is because the males are numbered, about 600,000 Hebrew males, and you take into account wives and children, uh, a, a good 
conservative estimate would be about 2 million Hebrews. And so from this time of, of, of Joseph's family's brothers and father settling in Goshen to 400 years later, they're 2 million strong. Extraordinary blessing of God upon them. Number three, the descendants of Abraham anticipate returning to the promised land. They know they're being saved uh, from the famine in Egypt, but they know that they're, they're going back. They anticipate going back. That's why in Genesis 47, 29-31, he says, Listen, when I die, take me back to the promised land. Genesis 48, 21 and 22. Look what it says. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. We will bring and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And so, hey, this is not the end for the Hebrews. We're not going to live in Egypt forever. God's going to, to, to bring us back to our promised land. Genesis 49, Genesis 50, uh, they anticipate this. Matter of fact, look in Genesis 50. I want to show you what Joseph, what happens with Joseph at the end of his life. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and, listen, bring you up out of this land to the land, the promised land, that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so Joseph says, hey, when, not if, but when God delivers you, Take my bones with you. I want to be in the promised land with my family. So they anticipated this return of the promised land. They had faith that God was going to keep his promise. And then, after all this, a future king is predicted. A future king is predicted. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob blesses his son Judah. Genesis 49, verse 9. This is Judah and his, his, his posterity, his tribe that would come from his descendants. Judah is a lion's cub. Remember that phrase, lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, which is an emblem of, of royalty. It's what a king has, a scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, this emblem of royalty will always be in Judah's hand. Judah's descendants will provide one day a king, and that king will reign forever. Look what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. In other words, it speaks of great prosperity. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. In other words, he's saying through Judah's descendants, through the tribe of Judah, a ruler's going to come and he will be special. There will be something special about this ruler. Now, how was that prediction fulfilled? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We're almost through. 
Have we been going that long? Goodness gracious. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. We've been studying this, right? Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Out of all the brothers, who's named? Judah. Judah's named. And Judah the father of Perez, there of Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, and goes to Salmon, and then Boaz, and Obed, and Jesse, and, 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 and it goes through this genealogy. And look how it ends. It ends in verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So listen, Jesus was born as a descendant from the tribe of Judah. You say, well, wait, it says that this, that, that this one would come and would rule forever. Well, let me show you what it says in Revelation. Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, John is weeping because there's a scroll uh, in heaven, and no one's worthy to open the scroll, and he, he wants to know what's in the scroll, so he's weeping. And look what happens in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of who? Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He's speaking here of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sitting on his throne in heaven, reigning over human history, reigning over humanity, the king who was predicted way back in Genesis chapter 49. I like how Kent Hughes says it. He says, the first gospel promise of a deliverer from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15 was preserved through the flood, through righteous Noah, and through uh, Noah's son Shem, and then through Shem's son Abraham, and then through Abraham's son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob, and then through Jacob's son Judah, and then beyond the history of Genesis, God chose a descendant of Judah, King David, to be the line through which the Messiah would come. When the line of the tribe of Judah came, he was born in Judah, his tribal territory in the town of Bethlehem. No one but Jesus had these credentials. So when he says way back in Genesis 49 that one will come from your tribe that has a scepter that will never depart from his hand, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. In the midst of all of this story, we've been reading about the patriarchs. God is working through the Jewish people, through the tribe of Judah, to send us a Savior named Jesus. And that's the big picture. And so at the end of this, this, the end of this book, we see the big picture. We, we're reminded of what God is doing. He's going to send a, a ruler through the tribe of Judah. You ever seen a, a movie? And it's just real evident at the end they're setting it up for a sequel. I mean, you just at the end of the movie, they're doing some things, and you're like, oh, there's going to be a number two. They're, they are, they are getting this, they're getting ready to give us a sequel. Well, that's what Genesis is doing here. Reminding us of the big picture and saying, hey, there is a sequel, and Exodus is the sequel, what happens next. 
But ultimately, Jesus is the sequel. He's the one that comes through the Jewish people to die on the cross for the sins of the world so that if anyone places their faith in him, they can be blessed with eternal life. That's good news, isn't it? Good news.